Thank you, Joy, very much. And may I begin by saying a thousand thanks to you as a congregation for your continued ministry to us in supporting my wife, Helen, and myself as we continue to visit and encourage God's people in and around the Middle East. Most of my daytime, I'm visiting Jordan or Lebanon or uh, Egypt or Iraqi Kurdistan, quiet places where not much happens. Um, but it's massively the time to be encouraging our friends uh, in their faith as well as responding to those from that region who find themselves here and elsewhere. And uh, we found one family connected with some of our colleagues who have just moved to Dunfermline. So if you've come in from Dunfermline and you'd like to help us welcome that family, have a wee word with me after the service. My friend and colleague, I'll call him Ray, will miss Easter this year. That's quite a thing to do in the Middle East where there's two Easter's. And uh, last year they were on the same date. This year they're a week apart. So we have Palm Sunday this week. Our friends will have Palm Sunday in the Eastern tradition next week. And it kind of wanders over the years. For the next couple of years it will be a week apart but it can be as much as five weeks apart. Very strange where West and East overlap. I'm glad senior church leaders are talking about whether we could possibly settle this and have one date like we have for Christmas, although guess what? The Egyptians have a different date for Christmas as well. Somehow, my friend and colleague Ray who lived 20 years in the Middle East, but with his family for educational reasons, have moved down under just now. He booked his visit from down under to fly home next weekend. Too late for Western Easter and too soon for Eastern celebrations. Well, next year, maybe he'll catch up. I will get two, one here and one in Egypt in two weeks' time. And we love celebrating. We love celebrating Easter twice when it happens. Here, of course, it's just once. And you might say, that's enough. We're getting ready to celebrate together. And the series of gospel moments starts today. They are so significant that all four gospel writers tell the story. They vary the details. They complement one another. Luke, I think, knows Matthew and Mark. And he knows that they told us some details already. When you read the Gospels, especially if you have time to look at them side by side, Luke often tells the same stories as Matthew and Mark, but longer here, his version of Palm Sunday is longer, but he leaves some of the details out. So there are no palms in Luke's account. There are no branches. There's no hosanna. But there are some things that he really wants us to understand. 
He leaves out other things that others say and points us to other angles and dimensions. Why does he do this? Luke is a second-generation Christian. In other words, he wasn't there when it actually happened. He had to find out from others the events and what they meant And he chose, he was a doctor, he chose carefully to pull the story together, to write it up, and to make it available for everybody else who's a second-generation Christian, like you, like me. We came late to the party, and we can rely on Luke's account alongside the others. And he gives us two angles to this particular day, two images, if you like, that he wants to govern our approach to what we call Holy Week. And the first part of that you see in verse 32 to verse 40, these two memorable images, the colt, the foal of a donkey, on the one hand, and the coats on the road on the other. Now, finding the colt happens exactly as Jesus says. Did you notice that as Joy read it to us? What he says they will find as he sends his friend to fetch this animal in verse 31 is exactly what happens when they go. People say, uh, who are you? Why are you here? (laughs) It's always the classic question in the Middle East. Who are you? Why are you here? Who's paying you? And who are you connected with? They always ask those questions. Be ready for them. And uh, the same happened to Jesus' friends. They went to take the colt. Why are you taking it? Who are you? Oh, the Lord has need of it. And as they came back, we discover they report exactly what happens word for word. Three times, Luke says, in that first verse, ahead. Jesus knows exactly what's coming. He sent them ahead. He had been going ahead. And when they came back, after being ahead, it's exactly happening as he told them it would, down to the exact words. I find that fascinating. This week, Jesus will be betrayed by friends. He'll be handed over to occupiers. He'll be falsely accused. He'll be illegally tried. He'll be wrongly convicted, with no one to represent or defend him, and refusing to defend himself. He will be flogged, and he will be strung up on a cross, crucified as a common criminal, and left hanging to die. By Friday, he'll be dead, cold, buried. Yet he is not the victim. He is completely in control of the events of this week. And the cult shows you. This is the Lord who is ahead of us. 
This is the Lord who is in charge. This is the Lord who is not the victim. This is the Lord whom nothing can faze. He arranged this before. He knows what's coming and he's embracing what's happening. The way Luke shapes his gospel, Jesus leaves Jerusalem at the beginning. And then in the middle, there's a moment where Luke says he turns and sets his face to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to shake him on that journey. Jesus knows exactly what is coming. I'm wondering, and the little word we had earlier on seems to underline it, whether you are here this morning, and for someone here, for some of you, you don't know what's coming. It's just feeling out of control. It's feeling so, so confusing. When we travel around the Middle East, the one thing we can be sure of is it's confusing. Things, as a friend of ours said to us recently, things here are never as they seem. There's always a story behind the story, and sometimes you haven't a scooby what's going on. And yet you have to keep moving. I'm saying to you, Luke says to us, Hear this. This Lord knows. This Lord is ahead. This King is in charge of those circumstances. Trust Him, and you have nothing to fear. Trust Him, and it's been my experience, and life gets immediately more complicated, not less. Be aware of that. But nonetheless, trust Him. Hear that. Follow the Lord who was ahead of his friends and who continues to be ahead of you and me. They find the colt. They bring it to Jesus. He begins his journey. He's come that long way up from 800 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above. He's gone that bit higher to the Mount of Olives and now he's coming down into the city and they put coats on the donkey to make a saddle for him. And then they put coats on the road to pave his way. We might be used to the saddling idea. We're not so used to putting coats. I wondered about asking you to put all your coats in the aisle just as a, an extra visual aid. But then uh, nobody would walk on them, of course. They'd walk around them. Uh, remember the Walter Raleigh story, putting his coat on the ground so that Queen Elizabeth I would not get her feet muddy. Something like that. They're making a red carpet for the one who is coming. In the back of Jesus' mind is something different. Coming in on the foal of a donkey, a colt like this, was what Zadok did with Solomon back in 1 Kings when he brought him to take over as king. This is in Jesus' head. Oh, he'd warned his friends who are so excited now that he's going to be handed over, that he is going to be mocked, he will be flogged, he will be killed and only then raised. But in the excitement, they've completely forgotten it. It's Passover week, Exodus time, freedom time. <laughs> the square in the middle of Cairo is called Tahrir Square. It means literally freedom square. It was named like that 
when they kicked the Brits out in the 1950s. But we'll let that pass. In their excitement, they've forgotten the warnings that Jesus gave. The brakes are off. Their expectations are sky high. They can feel it, and the feeling spreads. It's infectious. Their hopes for this Messiah, their hopes for this King, are shaping their views. Isn't this going to be the moment when Jesus will tackle the establishment at last? Isn't this the moment when the Messiah will come and change everything forever? It's time for us to be released from this Roman captivity, these foreigners who govern our rules and our lives. It's time for our sovereignty to be restored. It's time for the return of our national identity and control of our lives. Does that sound ever so slightly familiar to you? And how they sing and how they shout as Jesus moves in. And what they say, as Dave pointed us to at the beginning of the service, comes from this psalm, Psalm 118, which shapes this day and in many ways shapes this week. It's a royal psalm. It's a psalm of the king. It's the last one of the six that they would use every day in the run-up to pass over. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Luke didn't say that. Luke's written something else. He does a very strange thing. Remember, he's one of us. He's come at the second generation to what's happened. And he knows most of us don't have a Jewish background. And we don't know instinctively everything that the Messiah was promised to be and to do, the kingdom that he was going to bring. God's direct rule at last, bringing justice and joy. And he knows, Luke knows, that you're not supposed to mess with Scripture. You're not supposed to make up your own translation, are you? If you ever want to get Middle East church leaders really wound up, tell them about someone who's done their own translation of part of the Gospels or the New Testament. You can feel the shock run through the room. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be authorized. You're supposed to be governed. You're supposed to have official backing, right? Well, Luke says, yeah, I, I know all that, but I so want my global friends to get this that I want to fill this out a little bit. I want to draw out the meaning. Blessed is he who comes in the Lord. Who is he? He is the king. He is the ruler. He is God's person. He is the revelation of God at last. The whole story, the full picture, and he's coming now. Blessed is the king. He spells it out a bit like some of our most modern contemporary Bible translations. Some of them are quite free and they, they kind of make up your mind for you, don't they? they? They tell you what they think it means and you have to think, well, is that right or is that going too far? Can I dig for myself into the original languages if you can find someone who can help you with Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic? It's a real discipline, but it's an important one. And Luke has done that because he so wants you to get this. Glory to God. P 
peace in heaven. It uh, takes him right back to the beginning of his gospel when Jesus arrives. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. And when you come to verse 39 and 40 and the crowd are speaking, uh, you, you don't know how big a crowd it is, actually. We tend to think it's a massive crowd growing all the time. It might not have been more than a few dozen even. But whatever, they can't contain themselves any longer. They're celebrating because they've seen Jesus do some mighty things. They've been astonished at his teaching. They've been amazed at the way he's answered people's questions. And now, Having seen all those mighty works, they are hailing Jesus, the coming King, to do everything here and now that God intended to be done. He's the one who has God's authority to rule. And then there's a funny little incident. The Pharisees appear. You'll see them in verse 40, verse 39 and 40 there. They, they come and they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is the best picture I could find of uh, Pharisees in the crowd. Uh, they'd obviously been watching and listening. And interestingly, again, Luke is quite friendly towards the Pharisees. They get a very bad press elsewhere. Uh, but Luke uh, has them fairly positively. So it might be that they're kind of friendly and they, they want to kind of protect Jesus and his friends from what's coming and what's going on. Or maybe actually they're fearful because it's clear that something has happened that is going to change the status quo. And I guess they're worried what that might mean. Either way, see what Jesus says to them. If those people keep quiet, the very stones on which we're walking will cry out. It's a funny use of a phrase. We would use it I sometimes wonder if we could ask this pulpit to speak. What story would it tell us about the life of St. Paul's and St. George's, successive ministries, the ups and the downs, the joys and the challenges, if this pulpit could speak, if this castle could speak, if this palace could speak, if this royal mile could speak, what story would it tell? If these guys go quiet... The stones will speak, said Jesus. You can't stop this now. The king and his peace are different from anything they've seen before, going deeper than anyone has gone before. And after all that, you'd expect some real fireworks, wouldn't you? I mean, here we go. Are we ready? But the way Luke tells it, there's a kind of a pause He's given you the image of the king. You know what this is about. You know that the king is different. The colt and the cloaks tell you that. But now he gives you another image, a very striking image, one that no other gospel writer picks up on. And that's Jesus at the edge of the city, weeping over the city. Jesus the king weeps over the city. Do you know there's a convention uh, for the uh, journalists and the photographers that you're not allowed to photograph the queen eating? It's somehow undignified, so you almost never see the queen eating. 
I'm not sure I've ever seen the queen crying. I'm sure she does. It's not the kind of thing kings and queens do in public, is it? They might cry in private about uh, the way things are going or the government that they've set up, uh, whatever's happening around them. But they don't cry in public. But Luke's image for us this week is Jesus weeping over the city. Jesus knows what's coming, not just for him this week, but also for this city. Within 40 years, this city will be surrounded by Roman forces again, squashing an uprising and a revolution. Uh, The religious places will be desecrated and ruined. Uh, The city will be destroyed and ruined itself. And then 60 years later, within a century, it'll all happen again. What Jesus knows is coming is completely out of kilter with what his friends are hoping for. And he cries because he knows it. So the triumphal entry, I think sometimes our Bible headings, which aren't in the text, mislead us. The triumphal entry turns out to be a tearful entry. And it's a big, big surprise. Why? Why is Jesus crying? (laughs) When we lived in Egypt, uh, we cried many times. We cried uh, struggling with language to communicate, to understand. We cried with the culture and not quite knowing where you stand and whether you've done the right thing. And you, It's a culture of obligation. It's a wonderful culture, but it's, you only know your obligation when you missed it. And then it's kind of difficult to recover. And the uncertainty uh, when we were there, certainly during the uprising, that was difficult. <laughs> when foreigners leave... Egyptians say that Egyptians cry when foreigners leave. And the trick, of course, is to make sure they don't cry tears of sheer relief that you've gone, but tears of deep sadness that they will miss you. We had Palm Friday in Egypt, as well as Palm Sunday. It's a Muslim-majority country, and 90% are Muslims. So Friday and Saturday are the customary weekends for most people. So if you want to do stuff, you need to do it on Friday or Saturday. So our main church in the cathedral in Cairo was Friday church. So we had to do Palm Friday. We had to do Easter Friday. It was all a bit different. But then we did it all again on Sunday because you do have the right to go to church if you're a Christian and you wish to worship. You're allowed to do that under the present law. But Palm Friday made me cry. Oh, we had a real live donkey every year. And uh, we, uh, this is my successor, not me, I couldn't find my original pictures of us walking around all dressed up in front of the donkey. Uh, My friends commented quickly that they weren't quite sure which one was the donkey here. But they've processed around the grounds inside the cathedral. And now they're giving thanks and they're about to go back inside to continue to praise and to celebrate as we've been doing today. We sang the classic songs. We moved around the compound. You're free to do as you like within church premises. But what you're not allowed to do is to go outside and try and persuade others to join you. That's called disturbing the peace. 
There's a technical offense in Muslim countries called unsettling the faith of the Muslims. And you are not allowed to do that. How poignant it felt on a day like this not to be able to go outside. Not to take the message of the king who has come to change everything outside the church. Very strange. By the way, pray for our friends, many Egyptian Christians especially, when they have Palm Sunday next weekend and Easter to follow, they will be nervous. There were bombs in some churches this time last year. They will still go. Pray for them as they feel nervous about the celebration. I found uh, Egyptian Christian leaders have challenged us hugely. Bishop Munir there challenges us and says, uh, if you are not supposed to share your faith, I want you to share your faith. All my congregations, he says, I want you to share your faith. In order to share your faith, you have to know your faith. You have to understand it. And it's not just good enough to use words in this context. You've got to demonstrate it. You've got to show your faith. That's a pretty good slate, isn't it? Ramiz Atala is the head of the Bible Society of Egypt. Uh, he has a good friendship with the Bible Society in Scotland. Our problem in Scotland is that everybody has a Bible, but nobody reads it. It's the least read bestseller. Nobody knows what's in it. So we're always starting from scratch. Ramiz's problem in Egypt is he can't print enough. The demand is overwhelming from the renewing Christian churches, yes, but also from the majority. But there are obstacles. The doors look as if they're closed for him. And he says, look, when the door is closed, find a window. You're not supposed to give Bibles. Well, we'll sell them instead. So they sell them at cost price, book fairs and in the shops and so on. You're only by law supposed to sell your books in deliberately Christian shops and outlets. So they pay for stalls at fairs and festivals in order to get this word out. You are not allowed to try and persuade other people to turn and follow Jesus. But you are allowed to pay for advertising. You see, each time it looked like the door was closed, and each time they found a way to go through a window to get this message out. You can even get Bibles delivered in brown paper parcels, pizza style, if you phone the right number or go on the web. Isn't that brilliant? Now, our world here reacts, we think, very differently, but actually it comes to the same, doesn't it, sometimes? Oh, I'm really glad you're a Christian. I'm, clearly, it makes, does good things for you. I'm really pleased, but don't bother me, right? Uh, your faith is personal, and we think that means private, so please don't take us into the public domain. This is not for the wider sphere, right? That's the kind of pressure we're under. So the question will be this week, where are the windows in our world for sharing this message. You see, Jesus is weeping. He's managing his own expectations that the city of peace that was meant to display God's values and character and draw people to meet the Lord has missed it. It had so many advantages. It received so much, but it kept the message to itself. That's why Jesus is weeping this day.
This city can only disappoint. They don't know the time, he says. This is not time just for one city to be rescued or one small nation to be released. This week is for all people, every city, at all times. Think it over this week. Are we keeping this good news to ourselves? Can we find imaginative ways of sharing it? Can we use the events and the activities of this week and those that will follow in this church and in so many churches around us to open up conversations, to invite people, and to start making friendships? Can we go to the uh, Easter play, which is on again this year, every second year, it's on in Princess Street Gardens? Can we make that opportunity to show people? Because this is not just for us, right? Jesus is weeping over the city because they're keeping the good news to themselves and expecting people to come to them. And Jesus wants to turn it round and change the direction. Let's pray this week for our cities. By now you can tell that Cairo is one of mine, but I think my favorite is probably Beirut. Crazy traffic. Fabulous food, fascinating people, rotten to the core, riddled with abuse, riven with tensions. Jesus weeps over Beirut. Our favorite may well be Edinburgh. Confident, affluent, content. David Smith a senior Baptist minister who used to teach at the International Christian College did a study once of the statues in London and the statues in Edinburgh. Most of the statues in London are politicians and military leaders. Most of the statues here are poets and thinkers and philanthropists, people who made sure good things were done to people in need. This is the seat of the Reformation. Somehow, we lost it along the way. Jesus weeps over this city. This week, can we find time to wonder, find time to praise, and find time to receive this afresh? Hold on to these images, the king on the donkey with the coats, and the king who is Jesus weeping over our city. Follow him as he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And let this Easter recommission us to share what he's done wherever we go and whoever we meet. Amen. Let's pray.